0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, John Dickey on Freemasonry and Conspiracism. Let's take one of those figures, George Washington.
1: He was a Freemason. He was initiated, actually, I think before he was of age because it was part of a gentleman's status. Freemasonry is very, very deeply ingrained in American society. This is why Buzz Aldrin founds a Masonic lodge on the moon. The French Revolution was calamitous, a catastrophe for conservative Catholic Europe. And in the desperation to find an explanation, an exiled former Jesuit priest came up with an answer. And the answer was that the French Revolution was all the result of a conspiracy by the Freemasons. John Dickey, welcome to Chatter. Well, uh, well thank you
0: for inviting me on. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. I first came across your name and your work Many years ago now, when I was researching some organized crime issues, and I of course found your work, which you have been uh, very well involved over the years in research, in particular on Italian organized crime, which does make me wonder, how, how does one get to that as a career? How did you find yourself so interested in Italian history and in particular the organized crime networks?
1: Well, one chapter of my PhD, I mean, it was a strictly academic route, if you like. My my PhD included a chapter on the earliest sociological investigation um, into the, the Sicilian mafia in the mid-1870s by a guy called Leopoldo Franchetti, so I knew about the sort of revolution in historical thinking that had gone on um, in mm-hmm. Italy and Sicily in particular about the Sicilian Mafia, not just historical thinking, but historical thinking, if you like, following on from a revolution in judicial and investigative thinking. And it seemed to me that the rest of the world simply hadn't caught up, you know, in <laughs> the the, the The reflex way to talk about organized crime in Italy was as a sort of primitive preamble to the American story, Mm. you know, a story of very much told in the same sort of plaintive uh, key as the Godfather movies, certainly Godfather 2 as a story of sort of families and primitive violence and vengeance and so on and so forth, when actually we now know that the Sicilian Mafia was a self-conscious criminal organization before Mm -hmm. it went to America, that it's very much a manifestation of modernity. It's not to do with families uh, or anything like that, it grew up in the most advanced sector of the Sicilian uh, economy that is the citrus fruit sector on the outskirts of uh, Palermo on round and about Palermo where lemons you know Sicily at that point had a virtual natural monopoly of lemons which were exported to the new world and before too long um gangsters traveled with those lemons and that's how we got that first sort of transatlantic link but we don't get anywhere uh, looking at the sicilian mafia as something primitive or the reflection of a of a backward society and that story right. badly badly needed telling so that's why i set about mm-hmm. telling it
0: and on its surface it would seem that researching the Sicilian Mafia or its counterparts elsewhere in Italy would be challenging. That research can, can go so far, but at a certain point, you have to find yourself asking questions of people who have been reticent to answer such questions in, in most fora. So how do you find research on some of these topics such as organized crime? And the, the conversation we'll focus on most is Freemasonry researching topics that are inherently about some, some level of secret society and secret keeping when your job is to reveal many of those secrets?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. You know, the Sicilian Mafia is, of course, a secret society. Uh, it makes a great play of its code of omerta, which, interestingly enough, comes doesn't come from manliness or any of these things. It comes from masonic vocabulary mm. it means humility umirta mm. in in sicilian but it, it you know it is the code of silence it's humility of obedience to the boss um but fortunately for us that code is absolutely full of holes and what we find when we look at the historical records is that members of the Sicilian Mafia have always talked, have always broken omerta. You know, the first resort almost of a mafioso who is losing the fight against his internal rivals is to go to the police and to try and turn the police against them. (laughs) Now, what often would then happen. So the police would dutifully record all these statements and say, well, you know, I belong to this secret society. It's called the Mafia, or we call it the Honoured Society, and you have to go through this initiation ritual, and this is how we work, you know, and this is how we're structured. And all this would go fine, and then very often it would fall apart when it came to trial, because the witnesses would be killed, or would be brought back into the fold with sort of black threats or blandishments or whatever. Um, So what you've got is a lot of evidence that may not have quite, in some cases, it did stand up to trial, uh, but then got forgotten. Uh, But in a lot of cases didn't stand up to trial, but which we can look at now with the benefit of hindsight and say, oh, my goodness, you know, this really is the same organization. It's identical. It grew up in Mm -hmm. the same places. It did the same things, exactly the same business model. Uh, these guys were telling the truth and and paid for it with their lives in a lot of cases. So that's the kind of myster- uh, 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 material historians are working with. The mystery is not so much what the Mafia would, was doing. The mystery is how on earth it took so long for Italy in particular to get round to seriously fighting the Mafia.
0: Right. Well, I feel like we... We literally could talk all day about that topic, but I actually have been interested in talking to you for several weeks now after seeing some news related to Freemasonry, because you have also written what I consider the definitive work on the topic called The Craft. And it wasn't that long ago, I think we're going back to the the end of March, when I, I came across an outburst from the the great master of the grand lodge of Russia who issued a statement to presumably to not just Russian brothers, but also those in, in Ukraine saying that everyone should be faithful to their obligations to have a strict ban on discussions about political and religious issues in our lodges. We must avoid fraternal strife. Please refrain from discussing political realities, not only within the walls of the temples, but also in profane debates, including social networks, be faithful to your oath to the motherland. And it wasn't long after that the grandmaster of the great lodge in Ukraine pointed out that this was a, a real problem. There is no mutual recognition any longer between the grand lodges in Ukraine and in, in Russia. And. It had become a casualty, perhaps, or maybe a reflection of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And at the same time, anytime you have any world historical event, you will start getting the conspiracy theories. So you've had, I think in years past, you've had some of the pro-Russian separatists in Donetsk and Eastern Ukraine blaming any conflict on US and European Masons and you don't have to dig far into the more radical parts of the internet to find claims that Russia invading Ukraine is simply a Freemason hoax or alternatively that it's a problem of the the West conspiring against a Freemason activity of some number uh, a lot of numerology and things like that so when i started to see that john i thought I really need to talk to you because Freemasonry uh, perhaps is one of the most deliberately misunderstood organizations in history. Uh, But there is such a rich and interesting history there that understanding it better helps us put these kinds of claims into perspective. So I'd really like to start with your overall impression of Freemasonry, having dipped into it extensively for years. You find that the secrets that are supposedly part of Freemasonry are actually less important than the stories about the secrecy. Can you talk through that a bit? Yeah, I, I,
1: I'm glad you wanted to begin with secrecy. Uh, you know that that story, uh, the the Russia-Ukraine thing, is in a sense in microcosm the kind of thing that's been going on all the way through the history of Freemasonry. Freemasons have a ban on mm-hmm. discussing politics and religion in lodge meetings. Um, and uh, But the problem is, of course, who gets to decide where politics begins and ends. And clearly, Russian Freemasons and Ukrainian Freemasons have a very different view on that. And that story is repeated right through masonic history it's one of those uh rough edges where freemasonry's admirable code of universal values uh rubs up again up against the reality of the world of society and it's, it's those rough edges that i'm interested in in my book but let's start with secrecy um because, you know, when I uh, first started investigating this, I was, I was talking to the head of communications at the United Grand Lodge of England. I said, well, you know, you're a secret society, aren't you? And he said, no, 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 we're, we're not, definitely not a secret society. We're a society with secrets, now <laughs> that is a, a pretty invisible distinction to anyone with a, a kind of cast a, a suspicious cast of mind mm-hmm. uh, or, you know you always think ah well you see they've clearly got something hidden in the folds of their cloak somewhere but we, so we need to really dive in and understand what masonic secrecy is because it is an inevitable part of Masonic secrecy. One would almost say it's part of what it's intended to do, that it creates both a sense of loyalty and mystique around the Freemasons. People join because they want to be the possessors of secrets. Uh, People are attracted, you know, they're made curious about the Freemasons by this secrecy. And by the same token, people are made suspicious of freemasonry what have they got to hide is the refrain so let's look at this head on okay secrecy masonic secrecy takes part takes place is staged in a in a kind of ritual context to become a freemason you go through three key rituals the three basic important rituals they become a full Freemason in the full sense. And in each of those rituals, each of those rituals, there's a sort of tr- there are triple layers of secrecy. On the one hand, the meeting itself is secret. It takes part in a secluded location behind the closed, guarded doors of a lodge. Mm -hmm. Um, On the second thing, the things that you learn in the ritual are themselves disguised behind symbols of various kinds, the most famous one being the square and compass, but also everything is symbolic in Freemasonry, the aprons, the gloves, you name it. And then, of course, you have to take an absolutely blood-curdling oath to swear you swear to protect the secrets you know there's various forms of in the different rituals kind of throat cutting and disemboweling and all sorts of horrors which would make you think geez these masonic secrets must be something extremely momentous but because I'm not a Freemason, I can tell you what those secrets are. And I'm not really giving away any secrets because they haven't been secret mm-hmm. since at least 1730 when the first expose <laughs> of Freemasonry was published. Uh, so that's before mm-hmm. Freemasonry arrived in the United States, what well, then the American colonies. Secret number one that you learn in the first ritual is that you should really try to be a nice chap secret number two <laughs> Quite a secret there uh, secret number two is that that you learn in the second ritual is that you should try and find out a bit more about the world and mm. secret number three which is the most momentous secret of all the one that takes part in the most elaborate ritual uh, the master Mason ritual you learn that death is quite a serious business and ought to make us reflect on things. That's the third secret. So these secrets are toweringly banal. Nobody can (laughs) disagree with them. Nobody can disagree with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we're left to explain, therefore, is the colossal disproportion. Between the ritual and the palaver, to put it bluntly, that surrounds the rituals, the theater, the moral theater that surrounds these these secrets, and the secrets themselves. And the first is that we have to understand these rituals are really powerful. They work. Mm. They're they're well-designed emotionally powerful again and again and again people you know tell me when i ask them what it's like to become a freemason it really does feel like the the birth of a new self when it works they well. describe and it you know, almost
0: like a religious experience is yes that
1: right? well i you know freemasons will sort of bridle if you say you're a religion aren't you they'll say no we're not because we don't have any theology. We don't have, you know, mm-hmm. you can be a Freemason as long as you believe in God, any, you know, any religion and you can become a Freemason. Some In some countries, you don't even have to believe in God. In France, right. for example, atheists right. can be admitted. Mm-hmm. I like to explain, I like to think that they're a sort of re- a second order religion mm-hmm. in that they, they, they bring their rituals bring the same sense of fellowship and togetherness that ritual that really? uh, religion does you know the latin word religion religio is about binding people together mm-hmm. it has the same sense of sacred the sacredness the same ethical content about trying to collectively become a better person and above all freemasonry really deals with death a lot death is at the center of masonic ritual and like the great philosopher bertrand russell said you know the business of all major world religions is dealing with the fear of death Mm mm-hmm And Freemasonry does that. So, in that sense, I think it can be compared to a religion. Like I say, I call it a kind of second-order religion. And there's an undoubted power and dignity and seriousness in those rituals. People who aren't familiar with ritual, with Masonic rituals, like to laugh at all the trouser leg raising and chest bearing and all of the all of that sort of stuff that goes on. Any, any, any religious ritual looks weird if you're not familiar with it. And I, I think it takes a little bit of imaginative generosity to understand how these can mm-hmm. be very
0: powerful. The oddity for me, John, starting out as, yes. I probably as a teenager, reading, reading some book and reading about Freemasonry and these rituals, and, and maybe it's a, a function of childhood, maybe it's just upon learning anything new, But I immediately want to know the the origin story and correct me anywhere in here that I'm wrong. But my understanding is that the the stone laying, the the, the masonry part of it is is epiphenomenal now to the other than the symbolism to Freemasonry that originally because medieval stonemasons were actually bad at forming guilds eventually in Scotland, I believe that people got together, started forming lodges, and the term actually came from those who worked in free stone, the fine-grained sandstone or, or limestone, cut and cut the stone to shape. But then at some point after that in England, there started becoming what were called accepted masons, which is people included into these mason guilds who who did not have to be masons, they just had to be of high standing, and then they were accepted into this this fellowship. Am I right in general terms of, about that origin and and how non-Masons came to be part of Freemasonry and eventually, obviously, the quite dominant part of Freemasonry?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it broadly speaking, that's right. What you've got over more than a century between the Scottish capital Edinburgh and the English capital London, is a slow process whereby after an initial moment when there was a sort of meeting between the loose folklore of the elite stonemasons of Scotland... And the Renaissance philosophy of the court of King James VI of Scotland. That's when you start Mm. to get the idea that what's going on in these lodges is something a bit more philosophical. That's when gentlemen who have nothing to do with being, we should really call them architects, these guys. They weren't the laborers. This was the elite these weren't um, the
0: people actually laying the stones. These were not, the people, yeah, who probably were not. I mean, they probably come; they'd probably come, they'd work their way up from
1: from uh, uh, from the bottom. But uh, yeah, that's when you start to get the sense that the this these um, the tools of stonemasonry have a meaning that goes far beyond their practical use. They're symbols, memorable symbols of ethical principles. And that grows until really by the early 18th century in England, the connection with or or the last connection with the elite of stonemasons is broken. And it really just becomes a gentleman's club society with, you know, and this second order religion. But it's the context that just is just as important because going back to this issue of secrecy, The 17th and early 18th century in Britain is a time of ferocious religious conflict. You know, the Mm -hmm. British civil wars of the middle of the 17th century tore the country apart. Religion and politics were inseparable and linked to bloody controversy and bloody dispute. So if you are trying to create this club, this society, you can't give it any, and and give it that sense of sacredness, you can't give it any theological content because that will immediately court controversy. So Mm. what do you do? You borrow the sacredness of religion, that sense of togetherness, the rituals and all that sort of thing for your brotherhood, but you leave out all the theological content, all the political content about freedom of speech or whatever it might be. And what you have is empty secrets, secrets that nobody can disagree with, but which are wrapped in a rather sexy package of secrecy to make them seem Really interesting. So it's a very, very clever idea that allows the Masons, in a time of great religious and political controversy, to create a little local utopia of brotherhood and formal equality
0: uh, within the lodge. And that does include quite a few people in the, the 17th and 18th century who were truly. World historical figures: uh, you, Christopher Wren, Sir Robert Walpole, the first British Prime Minister in the mm. in the colonies. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Paul Revere, Sam Adams. Back on the continent, uh, Goethe. You had Marquis de Lafayette. The in a period of just a few decades, you had quite a few people who made quite an impact. Almost as if this was the the golden age of Freemasonry. We had a, a membership. Uh, explosion uh, in America after World War II, which we'll talk about later. But certainly in terms of the influence upon the course of modern history, it, it does seem like the the 17th and 18th centuries were absolutely critical.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, and, and that's why most Scholars who work on the history of Freemasonry have sort of gravitated towards the 18th century and the connection between Freemasonry and Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But let's take one of those figures, George Washington. He was a Freemason. He was initiated, actually, I think before he was of age, because it was part of a gentleman's status in, Mm. you know colonial america it was a way of uh making the right friends showing your your trustworthiness um and uh showing also that you were able to you know in the americas had particular importance because you know their religious tolerance was was key it was part of the air that people breathe that's why a lot of people had come to the americas in the first place But Washington was also a politician, and it's really after he becomes president that he sees the political uses of Freemasonry. Hmm. Um, And that's because, you know you know, famously, when he became president, he, you know, this was a job that he designed around himself. You know, there was speculation at the time that he was going to make himself king. It, you know, there was no real job description to being uh, president of the United States. And it's an immense credit to him that he designed such a lasting institution. But he recognized with great foresight the weakness of the new republic mm-hmm. because the lessons of history were absolutely clear whether it be classical history or the history of um uh the interregnum after the civil war in britain republics didn't last right. they collapsed into despotism or anarchy that was just a given mm-hmm. um and the reason was that you that republics couldn't have that sort of legitimating direct line descending from the almighty to the monarch and made manifest in all kinds of ceremonies and proclamations and you know that the, the 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 throne and altar were wedded together and The the New Republic didn't have that option. So Washington tried to plug some of the gap with Freemasonry. Here was something that could be a school of citizenship of those universal values of brotherhood and tolerance and respect and teach the skills of the skills that Americans would need for public life in in discussion and mutual respect and the formal equality of all citizens uh, without without a a link to a specific religion. And as a great bonus, the Freemasons, of course, were really, really good at ceremonies. We tend to think of Freemasonry being quite secretive, but that's a relatively recent Thing. You know, these guys would be parading up and down the streets on their festival days every six months in full costume. Uh, They had a great range of ceremonies for commemorating the inauguration of buildings and all of that sort Mm -hmm. of thing, because, of course, you know, they love to think of themselves as impersonating the kind of ethical values of the men who built the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages and all of that sort of thing. So that's why Washington chose to make such a huge public statement by laying the cornerstone of the Capitol building in the city That was going to bear his name, that as yet unkind of constructed Washington D.C. That he knew was going to bear his name, Uh, and he laid the um, uh, you know a full blown Masonic ceremony to lay the cornerstone of the Capitol building, a, 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 a ceremony that would then be imitated right across the early Republic. Huge hugely popular, and that's why these days, you know, occasionally if you check on the news, people will find these foundation stones and, you know, commemorative plaques and things like that deep under
0: historical buildings from the very early 19th century. Um, Absolutely, that, and, and and it actually builds into one of the themes I, I want to hit as we go through this is the conspiracy that usually later, but sometimes contemporaneously, wraps around these Masonic rituals in their influence. So in Washington, DC, as I think in pop culture is best represented in the Dan Brown book, the, the lost symbol, there is so much made of the geometry of Washington, DC, a planned city mm-hmm. that intersections echo the Masonic symbols of the compass and the square and all yeah. of the different ways that Masonic imagery is prevalent in early American history. Now in the lost symbol, it actually goes in a surprisingly promising direction, which is that Freemasons are not the big bad villains conspiracy taking over the world. It's really more the setting for the book in some ways, but it does lead to one of the many strands of conspiracies about Freemasonry, which is that George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, and I believe James Monroe, and a number of other prominent early American figures were all Freemasons. Therefore, and then you can go to some dark conspiracy about America. What's your experience when you look at conspiracism um, in the American experience of Freemasonry at this time? Uh, Of course, it expanded with things like anti-Masonic political parties within a few decades, how did that evolution happen from George Washington, the most respected man, perhaps apart from uh, Dr. Franklin in the colonies, suddenly transitioning in the course of one person's lifetime to anti-Masonic parties and uh, actual physical action against Masons? That seems like a sharp transition due to conspiracism.
1: Yeah, it's and it's a transition that, like Freemasonry, has its origins in Europe. The Catholic Church very quickly decided it didn't like Freemasonry at all. Freemasonry, and what are the real
0: origins of that? Is was it just yeah. a competing center of influence? Because honestly, uh, John, the way you've described the precepts of Freemasonry it is not in conflict with Catholicism. It actually supports some of the ethical precepts that the Catholic Church purportedly supports. Well,
1: to a church that believes it holds a monopoly on truth, the idea of religious tolerance <laughs> is heretical. Is yes. <laughs> and, of course, you, you, you have to remember that the Catholic Church in the 18th century, and, you know, and indeed until 1870, was also a monarchy. It was an absolute monarchy. It owned, you know, it, it, it owned, the Pope ruled a huge swathe of territory across central Italy, and the Pope was an absolute monarch. And so um, the, the, the secrecy of Freemasonry galvanized the idea that they must be up to no good, that they must be either heretics or mm-hmm. subversives. Remember the idea of our, our open society with civil society organizations and freedom association, that doesn't exist in an absolutist state. Politics happens at the court and nowhere else. So the very existence of a society of free mm-hmm. men like the Freemasons is looked on with huge suspicion let alone, you know, even before we get to the ideas of religious tolerance and secrecy and so on. So very quickly in 1738, Freemasonry, for all Freemasons are excommunicated by the Pope, and that starts a long tradition of Catholic hostility towards the Freemasons. The the excommunication is still valid. It was last reiterated in the 1980s. By the guy wow. who would become Benedict XVI, the, the now retired Benedict XVI, when he was head of what is what the in, the organisation that the Inquisition turned into. Right. Um, now things got worse after the French Revolution. You have to imagine what a cataclysm for Catholicism. The French Revolution was throne and altar; the two providential pillars of the earthly order of things collapsed. Religion, you know, the, the the French Revolution invented the religion of the supreme being. It tried to kind of de Churches were smashed up. Rouen Cathedral was turned into a gunpowder factory. This was calamitous, a catastrophe for um, conservative Catholic Europe. And in the desperation to find an explanation, somebody, uh, an exiled former Jesuit priest in London who'd fled for his life to seek sanctuary in London, came up with an answer in five thick volumes, and the answer was that the French Revolution was all the result of a conspiracy by the Freemasons. And that book, published in 1897 was really the template for our modern conspiracy theories. If there is a sort of core form of all the many manifestations of conspiracy theories that are still with us, it's the idea that there is this secret elite behind the scenes manipulating world affairs for evil purposes. Mm. And the Freemasons are perfect for that, perfect. Because not only have they got this secrecy code, but in the course of the 18th century, particularly in France, they started falling out with one another. They started arguing over whether to let women in or whether to let Muslims in or whether to let mm-hmm. Jews in. They argued over ri- the right forms of rituals, the right. Um, you know, the the, the values, who was in charge of the finances. And what you get is a kind of explosion of different forms of Freemasonry, different versions of rituals, Freemasons arguing with each other, even violently in some cases. And if you're of a conspiratorial frame of mind, all of this looks like a sneaky plan it looks like a sneaky plan to disguise the real secrets at the heart of freemasonry to create a sort of russian doll effect you know that you or an onion where you keep peeling away layers and you never quite come to the evil at the heart which is of course perfect for the conspiratorial mindset because it renders it completely immune to contrary evidence if you if you you say look i I know freemasons they're decent guys ah but they're only the ones in the ordinary lodges wait till you speak to the guys in the higher degrees or in the occult lodges or you know uh and so on and so forth so it's perfect and that's where the conspiracy theory takes hold and it comes particularly with an illuminati scare
0: Yeah. Talk about the relationship between the actual Illuminati, um, the Enlightenment ideals, the Freemasonry. How did did that all get wrapped together, both in Europe and, of course, affecting the impression of Freemasonry in America as well? Yeah, yeah. This is an important chapter. The Illuminati
1: were founded in Bavaria by somebody who wanted to create a kind of not very well-defined utopia, who just as, as it were took seriously the potential for conspiracy that the Catholic Church, his enemy, saw, and the absolute monarchies, saw in Freemasonry. He thought, oh, gosh, maybe if we do have a masonic conspiracy we'll you know we'll get where we want to go we'll get to this utopia of free speech and enlightenment and all of that kind of stuff so he founded the illuminati to infiltrate masonic lodges and for mo- actually never quite worked out what they were trying to do he was sort of making it up on on the hoof And for most of the, lots of famous people were in the Illuminati, like Goethe, but for most of them, it was just a glorified book club. You know, it wasn't anything in particular. But of course, when it was finally discovered, because there are very rarely any secrets in this world, it terrified the living daylight out of the authorities in Bavaria, Mm -hmm and sure. in the uh, you know in the catholic church and the rest of europe because they thought you you know they said well you see we told you all along here's the conspiracy and so the illuminati were as- inserted into this machinery of conspiracy mythology became so successful that you know the united states had its own illuminati scare short lived and but conspiracism, the fear of the Freemasons only really took hold in the middle of the 1820s um, when a Freemason in upstate New York vanished, uh, the Morgan controversy. He had been boasting that he he was a rather drunken ne'er-do-well um, hmm the kind of person the Masons are supposed to exclude. Um, And he had been heard boasting that he was going to publish the rituals of Freemasonry. Now, the rituals of Freemasonry had been published, the secrets had been published many times before then. But in the very religious climate of upstate New York, you know, we're in the second great... um, Revela- what's it called? Seventh Great Revelation, the, the names escape me anyway. Um, the, the, there was a lot of kind of religious fundalism, relig- religious fervor around. The most likely explanation is that some Freemasons really took these terrible oaths that they'd taken very seriously. Hmm. And um, in their Naivety, if you like, about the real nature of Masonic secrecy, decided to do away with this guy, William Morgan, and he vanished. His body was never found. Which reinforces public perceptions of a deep, dark conspiracy. Absolutely. This triggered a massive wave of anti Masonry. There were suspicions also that the Masons had, you know, fixed the various trials into the case and, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and this led to this wave of anti-Masonry and the foundation of an anti-Masonic party and anti-Masons running for president and all of that kind of thing. Well, at the same time, of course, you know, in, in uh, uh, you've got Masons as presidents and so on. And Freemasonry is very, very well rooted because, you know. George Washington had given it such a tremendous start in the United States, so that was a that caused a kind of catastrophic dip in Masonic affiliation in the United States. That really only began to revive in the kind of antebellum years.
0: Mm-hmm. I am fascinated that you know both around the the time of the French Revolution and after, and in in the United States that there was this strong anti Masonic activity, but there was an aberration to that trend that in the area of your deepest expertise, Italy, that, that after Napoleon's conquests, Freemasonry actually became quasi official in Napoleonic Italy. How, how did that happen? And what did it have to do with the so-called charcoal burners or carbonari? Yeah.
1: Italy is a very interesting case of something that was happening across Europe, particularly after the Reformation. Uh, so after the Restoration. So after the upheaval of the French Revolution and Na- Napoleon conquering large parts of Europe, we get the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon sent off onto his island, and absolute absolutist authority is re-established. Now Freemasonry comes into this picture because it had virtually died out uh, after the French Revolution, despite what the conspiracy theorists say that they caused mm-hmm. the French Revolution. It didn't really work out for them if they did. But Napoleon seized on it. We don't know whether he himself was a Freemason or josephine but Josephine definitely was. and many of his closest clan were Freemasons. And he turned Freemasonry into a semi-official club for all of these new men and new military officers. You know, one of Napoleon's great appeals to the thrusting middle classes of France and of other countries was that just like napoleon who'd risen from being a corporal to being the most powerful man in the world you too could rise just you know because of your talents and not because of the status you were born into and men like that found in freemasonry a way to network a way to reinforce their status A way to meet powerful people like Napoleon's closest collaborators, and a way to show their loyalty to the regime. So Napoleon created this official Freemasonry, if you like, semi official Freemasonry, which was also exported to many countries that Napoleon conquered, including southern Italy, where uh, Napoleon's brother in law, Giochi Murat, Became, was made king of Naples by uh, Napoleon and at the very same moment became Grand Master of the Grand Orient of Naples precisely so that he could co-opt members of the Neapolitan elite who wanted mm-hmm. to modernize their society and along Napoleonic lines into being loyal to the Napoleonic regime. So you know, but also, of course, these local people needed to be watched. They couldn't be, I mean, they weren't French. They needed to be kept an eye. on. so Napoleon's lodges were also great centers for spying and intelligence. And they were all places where Italians also began to organize with a view to uniting Italy. For the first time, Italy had never been united before. And the unification of Italy under the Napoleonic boot, if you like, opened up the idea that Italy actually might make sense as a country. So you've got this mixture of kind of spying and and intelligence and counterintelligence and conspiracy going on in the Masonic lodges and in a a, a break-off organization called the Charcoal Burners or the Carbonari who turn into having been founded by french uh, people within the napoleonic re- regime turn into a revolutionary organisation that aims to overturn the napoleonic regime hmm. and also subsequently overturn the restored monarchies after napoleonic napoleon forms remember these hmm. are absolutist monarchies and if you're undoing politics is illegal it's treason so you need to do it in secret societies where you can create that sort of russian doll effect so that you're not easy to penetrate you're not easy for spies to get in and but you know and behead and find the leadership so the masonic organizational model lends itself superbly well to revolutionaries, to revolutionary conspiracies. So the mm-hmm. conspiracies that the establishment had feared after the French Revolution actually come into being as one of the many, many historical ironies um, of the history of Freemasonry.
0: Mm-hmm. It seems to me that there, there's no shortage of things that Freemasonry can be blamed for and its overlap over these centuries with any conspiracies or political movements that you want because of the nature of the secrecy we spoke of earlier. Uh, It's a convenient boogeyman, right? So there are conspiracy theories that overlap with antisemitism, that because Jews were allowed into many lodges relatively early on, that in fact, it's a front for the, the great Jewish conspiracy theory, right? Or the idea that because we don't know exactly what they teach. I think it was, fast forwarding to the 20th century, I think it was Francisco Franco in Spain who tried to equate Freemasonry and communism as the threat to his regime. So it becomes a very convenient boogeyman and gets a lot of negative attention there, but it also played a really interesting role in America in the US Civil War because of something that was called Prince hall Freemasonry and because of the person of, I believe his name was Albert Pike, who was notorious in many ways and became the source of many of these conspiracy thinkers ideas because of things he said and did that were a bit apart from traditional Freemasonry. Can you talk a bit about the American experience around the the U.S. Civil War and how Freemasonry really intersected with a whole lot of that history.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the many, many fascinating things about Freemasonry, uh, and why it makes such a powerful perspective and fascinating lens to look at the world through, and particularly to look at America through. Because I said, as I said, those values that Freemasonry espoused from the outset, those enlightenment values, were the values of, you know, the Declaration of Independence and, and uh, the Constitution and so on and so forth. But in the United, you know, a Freemason really became a home from home once it landed in the American colonies, and as I said, particularly once uh, uh, after independence, But of course, just like America, its espousal of those uh, values was stained from the outset by slavery. And Freemasonry ran into exactly the same problem. It was a microcosm of the American tragedy, if if I can put it that way, in the sense that um Because of the racism of white American Freemasons who refused membership triggered in, this was triggered in Massachusetts, um, refused membership to a man called Prince Hall, uh, an African American Freeman. Uh, and some of his friends refused membership of Freemasonry. They founded their own lodge, which would ultimately gain recognition in London from
0: the Grand Lodge of England rather than... Let me cut in here, John, to ask. Isn't it true that traditionally the lodges, at least uh, according to their constitutions and their laws, were were remarkably open they did invite people from different faiths they did invite people from different backgrounds they did not have explicit bans on people depending on the color of their skin but of course social practice in individual lodges did lead to some racism along the way absolutely
1: you know in london's lodges in the 18th century, in those early years of Freemason, we, we find not just different varieties of Protestantism. We find Jews. We even find Catholics. Now, in right, right. 18th century London, Catholics were, you know, pretty much traitors, regarded as traitors, a priori. Um, and yet, we, we, Freemasonry even had a Catholic Grand Master in its early years. And Amazing. that's an astonishing modern level of tolerance. But in America, it ran up against the race problem, and it ran up against similar problems in other countries. In Germany, it ran up against deep seated anti Semitism, for example. In America, it took the the what how it manifested itself was the foundation of an African American tradition of Freemasonry called after its founder Prince Hall Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. And if, here we run into what we said at the outset about the Masonic ban on politics. Of course, you know if you're an African American and somebody says. You know, you mustn't fight against slavery. That's doing politics. You're oh, going to say, great. "Well, who says?" You know, <laughs> we don't think that way. the The definition of definitions of politics varied, and indeed, we find uh, Prince Hall Freemasons v- deeply, deeply involved in the struggle against Freemasonry. The, the example, oh, sorry, in the struggle against slavery. Forgive me. The example I use is the 54th Massachusetts, the famous regiment that was made the subject of the movie Glory a few years ago, which was the first regiment uh, recruited um, in the north of freed African-Americans recruited into the Union forces um, uh, and uh, to fight to end slavery, you know that's when, eighteen sixty-three, when the the Civil War becomes a war to end slavery, and it was recruited, and m- many of its uh, junior officers, its non-commissioned officers, as we call them in the UK, do you do you use that phrase, sergeants and stuff? Do you use that phrase in the USA? Were Prince Hall Freemasons? It was recruited that regiment by networks of Prince Hall Masons, uh, and Prince Hall Masons were in it. Their sons were in it. Uh, And uh, so they were in the forefront. They were, if you like, the black intellectual elite on a war footing. Right. And a century later, we find so many Freemasons, uh, Prince Hall Freemasons, involved in the civil rights Mm -hmm. struggle um, at all Um, all kinds of levels you know many of those uh, early legal struggles for example brown versus the board of education were funded largely by collections by prince hall um uh masonic lodges and just one Mm -hmm. example against many 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 um uh among many was medgar evers Mm -hmm. who was murdered uh what would it be, what would it be sixty years ago next year? Um, Medgar Evers was a Prince Hall Freemason. His branch of the um, NAACP was inside the Prince Hall Grand Lodge in Jackson, Mississippi, for its own protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as it happens, he was also murdered by mm-hmm. a white supremacist freemason um so that struggle was hugely important and on the other side there's no question that in certain times and places white freemasonry became a vehicle for white supremacist ideas um Mm And in the person, for example, of Albert Pike, you mentioned, who is really the man. The Scottish Rite is is the most. The term won't mean very much to non Freemasons, but it's it's the most elaborate system, and most prestigious, I suppose, system of Masonic rituals. That's where you get thirty three degree. De- mason right. 33rd degree masons a so 33rd degree masons has reached the top of the ladder of the ritual ladder of the scottish right and the man who really codified those 33 rituals of 30 extra ones to the three basic ones was albert pike who was a confederate general and a white supremacist thinker who advocated uh, after the Civil War, the foundation of a secret society looking remarkably like uh, Freemasonry but not Freemasonry because it would be political, and its goal would be, mm. you know, would be white supremacy, the maintaining of white dominance in the Absolutely. Uh, post-Civil and War it's, South.
0: It's cases like this, John, that, you know, when I when I struggle to... Understand conspiracy thinking. I hey, this is what I like to point to with Freemasonry is you had the Prince Hall Freemasons, um, you had some of the, in a sense, the the heroes of the Civil War were 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 strong Freemasons and were working from the the principles of Freemasonry. And on the other side, you had Albert Pike, who was you know justifying slavery and violence against African Americans based on his interpretation of Freemasonry. And it's if, if you could have a similar tradition where they are literally killing each other, uh, pretty hard to imagine a unified global conspiracy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely.
1: Um, the, the, the interface between, there, there are so, so many ways, and, and I've just illustrated some of them in which Freemasonry is both influenced by the history of the modern world and influences the history of the modern world. Hmm. And you you have to be extraordinarily dogged in your lack of imagination to really survey this vast panorama and think it's all down to a conspiracy.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about two modern... Uh, examples of this. Uh, one example, I'd like to return to the United States to talk about the evolution of Freemasonry after the World War II in the United States, and then its decline actually in recent decades. So, you know, as you know, my father recently passed away. And as I was going through his papers, I learned something which I never knew before, which is that his father, so my grandfather was at least a third degree Mason. I don't know if he was in the Scottish Rite and and proceeded, but the the papers uh, I found uh, surprised me to learn that in fact he he was a master Mason. And it makes sense because this is the time in the 1940s, 1950s, when there was a boom in Freemasonry across the United States. Lodges were popping up everywhere. It seemed like at least among white Protestant men, it was very common to join these lodges. And it became the, the source of a lot of fellowship, a lot of uh, networking. It became the source of some pop culture with shows like the, the Flintstones cartoon, echoing this trend in American culture and providing a, a social bond during those crucial decades. But then it, of course, it it declined after that as other things started taking people away from the feeling of, I must go to the Lodge to be with my brethren. Um, talk a little bit about that evolution in the, in the United States and whether my grandfather's experience of, of joining the Lodge in that period was, in fact, uh, representative in many ways of what was going on. Yeah, well, having
1: kindly read my book, you'll know that I had a very similar experience. My own grandfather, I discovered, was a Freemason. Um, mm-hmm. He'd fought all the way through the First World War um, and joined, like many millions of men from the combatant countries, joined the lodge, I think, in the hope of finding the fellowship that he'd found in the trenches. And, uh, and also, you know, maybe getting a helping hand readjusting to civilian life because he, he was a professional soldier. He'd been in the army mm. for 10 years or so as an artillery man. Right. Um, so that's a very common experience and mm-hmm. yeah, that post second world war peak really came as the sort of final crescendo of a century in the United States of fraternalism, golden century of fraternalism, with a bit of a dip for money reasons during the uh, Depression, but really it, and it wasn't just Freemasonry. It was lots of other organizations inspired by Freemasonry, who, who, organizations, you know, from the Rotary and the, the Lions and, the, you know, all those thousands of fraternal organizations uh that unite that is one of the extraordinary characteristic things about the united states particularly in the 19th century all of them have got masonic dna basically they are you know yeah we like this about freemasonry but we're just going to tweak it a bit we don't want to have to wear all the costumes and stuff like that so we're going to do this or you know have slightly different rules or you know so um uh you know and so you get catholic ones forming and and more working class cheaper ones forming and sure, all this sure. sort of thing um and that movement absolutely culminated after the second world war really when you know american males almost by definition were members of fraternal organizations um And the Freemasons were the sort of the original and best of those, if you like, Uh, the oldest, the most historically prestigious, the ones who really told their own story as walking in lockstep with the American story. They saw themselves as a symbol of free, freedom. They could look around the world and see that Freemasonry was banned behind the Iron Curtain and behind the Bamboo Curtain. And that, you know, bolstered their idea that Freemasonry really stood for America, for the core of what America was about.
0: And, and John, it helps put to rest the idea that. Uh, Freemasonry is a front for Bolshevism and communism, right? Oh, so God, Francisco yes, Franco, absolutely.
1: <laughs> the yeah, banning absolutely. most
0: communist countries of anything resembling Freemasonry puts a rest to that. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a front for
1: drinking beer and having meals, but <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> um, but, Which is not a bad thing. We're not yeah, or a, a front for doing charity work, whatever. No, I'm a big fan of beer and nice meals. So, <laughs> the, um deeply 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 ingrained in american society um you know this is why buzz aldrin founds a masonic lodge on the moon you know in in which is a story most into...
0: most people don't know that uh yeah that that actually that that actually happened right yeah yeah he had a license from i think it
1: was the grand lodge of texas to to mm-hmm. found a masonic lodge on the moon. it's still it's I don't think anybody attends the meetings but I think well, it's still we, on the books not that we know of. <laughs> yes. Um so but that peak began to decline and the decline is really about the ch- changes broader changes in American society. One of the big ones is the growth of the financial industry of life insurance uh and That's the life insurance, because, you know, you forget that Freemasonry was a kind of welfare system. You made, you paid your contribution so that your widow would get a payout if you, you know, if something happened to you. That's why it was so successful in the British Empire as the sort of informal welfare system for imperial soldiers and bureaucrats and merchants who were travelling the world and conquering large bits of it. Um, So, and and it's not a coincidence that lots of fraternal organisations then morphed into insurance companies Um. Uh, with the passage of time you also got a change in lifestyles you know that the a lot of the the Maso- you know the 1950s the late 1950s was when the actual peak of masonic membership happened Some went over mm-hmm. 4 million 4.1 million i think it was was also the coincided with the lowest rate of female employment mm-hmm. women had gone back into the home after the second world war and as women re-emerged became more educated entered the workforce they weren't going to stay at home and polish the floor while you know husband went off to the uh, the lodge meeting um you know the the other entertainment forms became um available Um, that were, you know, more gender mixed and uh, more required less time commitment because Freemasonry can be very time-consuming, you know. Um, And so for this and other reasons, mostly social drivers, Freemasonry entered this kind of decline. You know, famously 14 presidents of the United States have been Freemasons. Last one was Gerald Ford. Uh, Truman was probably the most Masonic of the mm-hmm. uh, Masonic presidents, the one who really, you know, he kept going to lodge meetings when he was president and he really found something very important for his
0: life in in Freemasonry. Do I recall correctly, John, that Harry Truman was, uh, was Scottish Rite and actually reached that 33rd level? I think you're right, yes. I I remember hearing that at some point.
1: I mean, the 33rd degree um, is actually generally bestowed as a
0: kind of honor rather than, you know. uh, But yes, I think you're right. And fascinating to think uh, in terms of presidential security that at that time things were much looser and more casual. But it's hard to imagine a president in recent decades going into a Masonic lodge uh, and having Secret Service protection, <laughs> well, yeah. Capable, go, let um, alone
1: the the damage yeah. to to his image that might accrue. Can you imagine a Republican Absolutely. president going? Well, go, it really- points to the
0: difference between what you said of the culture of the of the 1940s and 1950s uh, versus the culture yeah. in America today. But it's it's not solely an American story, right? The the Masonic. There are stories all over the world, and I will encourage people to, to look at your book, which is the craft. And it describes fully how Freemasons helped make the modern world. But the other conspiracy story I want to talk about is, is back to, to your area of deepest expertise, which is Italy. And I I would like you to tell the story of what was awkwardly known as the propaganda Two lodge or P two, and it's venerable master and the absolute uh, blockbuster, headline-grabbing activities that occurred within and around that lodge intersecting with huge Italian government investigations. So tell us the broad outlines of the Propaganda 2 or P2 Lodge and how that developed. Yeah, P2 is where all the conspiracy theories
1: come true, basically. (laughs) Uh, And it's an extraordinary story. Um, Italian Freemasonry was, uh, well, just to give you an idea of what they got up to, Licio Gelli, the venerable master of the P2 Masonic Lodge, uh, was convicted of financing the right-wing terrorists who committed Italy's worst post-war terrorist atrocity, the murder of more than 80 people in 1980 when a bomb was placed in the waiting room of Bologna station. Yeah. Uh, He laundered money for the mafia. His lodge was a centre of corruption and blackmail um, and right-wing conspiracy, anti-democratic conspiracy. Um, And... That story really could only happen in Italy. Italian Freemasonry in the second half of the 19th century had been right at the center of the country's political life. Italy didn't have political parties then, but it had Masonic lodges. Lodges were where the meetings happened, where you talked to people, where you got your ideas across. They didn't support one side or the other but they were a very important organising forum when politics was an elite business. And of course, Freemasons, being great anti-Catholics, were perfectly suited to a country that had founded itself by knocking the Pope off his throne, and the Pope had excommunicated all the leaders of post unification Italy, after Garibaldi and all of that. So, you know, after 1870, when Rome was taken over and the Pope confined to the Vatican. So the Masons felt like they were right at the center of the value system and the political system of Italy. But then along came fascism and banned Freemasonry in 1925, Mussolini's first act after he declared that he was going to found a dictatorship, was to ban Freemasonry. And in post-war Italy, the Italian Republic was founded really by collaboration between two opposing parties who would go on to dominate the post-war political settlement, the Christian Democrat Party, a Catholic Party, Conservative Party, part of the Western Alliance, mm-hmm. and the Communist Party, Europe's most powerful Communist Party, right. uh, which put Italy right on the front line of the Cold War. My God, if the Communists took over, you know, who in Italy, who would be next? So the Cold War was fought out in Italy. But the Freemasons felt powerless within this because both the Catholic Christian Democrats and the Communists hated Freemasonry. Italy's constitution that they created in 1948, what um, came online in 1948, um, banned secret societies. And, wow. you know, it wasn't clear whether that applied to the Freemasons or not. So in a desperate bid to get back to power, as it were, get, get back to the center of public life, at a time in the mid-1970s when the communists were growing electorally, when the Christian Democrats were mired in one corruption scandal after another, This man, Lucio Gelli, came along to the Grand Orient of Italy, Italy's most prestigious Masonic tradition. He said, look, you've got this thing called propaganda too, lodge propaganda. I think I can use that to help you get back where you want to be, to attract a top caliber of member to your body. Propaganda had been a lodge that was founded to allow famous people that you know top statesmen poets celebrities to become freemasons without having to go through the bother of belonging to going to lodge meetings because they were too busy so they could bring their luster to freemasonry and um uh, while not having to commit too much time to it so, Lodge Propaganda 2, as it was rebaptized after the war when Freemasonry was refounded, L- Jelly mm-hmm. said, and Jelly was a man, you know, he was a fascist, he had been a fascist, and so I said, Look, I can use this. I can bring famous people on board for you. I've got lots of great contacts. But what he did was he re engineered P2 into this corruption machine. Because uh, and took it over, made it, you know, the cuckoo took over the nest, if you like. Because Freemasonry has a lot of antibodies within it to stop it being misused. You know, you, you, you have to swear to obey the law. When you become a Freemason, you can't just take over a lodge and do what you want with it. You have to serve a long time in other duties and responsibilities, uh, do an apprenticeship, as it were, before you might acquire any authority within the lodge as a mast- as the master of the lodge, whatever. And just the sheer amount of time dedicated to rituals and meetings and so on. Means that if you're really looking to use a Masonic lodge as a sort of centre of corruption and dodgy dealing, you really are better founding a WhatsApp group. You know, it's just a lot <laughs> easier.
0: Right. Um,
1: but Jelly did this. He used this, you know, and the the sort of mystique of Freemasonry to turn it into this corrupt power centre. Um, and when it when it was exposed and the secret list, membership list was found, it was found to contain, you know, huge parts of the military and police establishment, huge mm-hmm. numbers of bankers, politicians, statesmen, uh, the man who would be Silvio Berlusconi, the man who would go on to become Prime Minister of Italy much later. And this unleashed a new wave of conspiracy thinking. How far did this go? And nobody's ever Mm -hmm. quite come up with an answer. And in the process, permanently damaged the image of Freemasonry in Italy. Nowhere Mm -hmm. in the world, I don't think, outside of the countries that ban
0: Freemasonry, um, has Freemasonry got such a bad image. Now, did you if you put together this picture which is still a bit murky it's still a bit blurry exactly where the lines of influence ended and the lines of direct control began but when you look at this this murky blurry picture do you think that that freemasonry was at the heart of the criminal activity or is it closer to a description that there was criminal activity that just involved a lot of use, perhaps manipulation and co-opting of Freemasonry.
1: I think it was using and co-opting Freemasonry. It took advantage ruthlessly, in a very Machiavellian way, of weaknesses within Freemasonry. Both the, the weakness of, of this lodge propaganda as it like as a sort of constitutional mechanism within Freemasonry, mm-hmm. uh, but also you know the idea that Freemasons get into Freemasonry to me- network to make important friends. What Jelly did was strip out all of the. Uh, you know, in a lot of people's perceptions, strip out all the rituals and stuff. There were no rituals in lodge propaganda 2 Once you'd become a member, and it's, and, yeah. and 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 the oath that you took was just to help your brothers. It it was it was a kind of omerta. It was like the mafia code, rather than uh, rather than the Masonic code. So he reengineered it. And also, you know, there were enough powerful people out there who were just drawn by the very mystique of the idea that this was the real heart of power in Italy. And Jelly may not have ever used any of them, or they may, may well have done nothing wrong, but what he certainly did was spend their names to say, look, you know, We've got so and so, we've got this general, we've got this the head of this bank. Um and in his lodge, you know, there were never any lodge meetings. To get to, mm-hmm. to do anything within lodge propaganda, you had to go through Liccio Gelli. So he centralized, you know, Freemasonry as a network. He made it into a organizational pyramid with him at the top.
0: That's a that's an important point because it seems in, in looking at this, this great history you've compiled that the cases where Freemasonry has gone down some of those darker roads haven't been, it doesn't appear that they've been Freemasonry incidents. They've been incidents of Freemasons deviating from the general path of democratic election of leaders within the lodge of open decision-making of fraternal relations, but, but a corruption of those such as, you know, in this case, jelly running essentially a dictatorial version of a lodge, um, which yes, it's still associated with, with the Masonic movement, but it is in fact not the way that uh, most Masonic lodges run. And certainly not the way that they were intended to run as a social organization and a decision making body.
1: I think that's right if you're talking exclusively about, as it were, corruption, the thing that, you know, people are often, Masons are often suspected of, you know, being sort of illicit influence. But I think you're wrong when it comes to some of the other flaws of Freemasonry and some of the other problems Mm -hmm. that it's got into um they are to do with freemasonry they aren't to do with just individual freemasons going wrong there have been problems institutionally with freemasonry i've already cited the racism of white freemasonry the long history of racism in white freemasonry right. which is only really in relatively recent years begun to come to terms with mm. another instance is the british empire yes now yes. the Freemasonry's universal values. I've already explained that the Masonic network, as it were, the Masonic welfare system was fundamental, a fundamental informal support to the British Empire. You know, you're an imperial soldier and you could be moved from uh, Canada to Calcutta to Cape Town. You need to find a home from home when you arrive. You need somebody who's going to send some money to your widow if you meet a nasty end. You need friends. You need something familiar. You need a social life. And the Lodge provided that. And Freemasonry was proud of its association with empire, and indeed it went further. The great legitimating lie of the British Empire was that Britain was... Conquering the world and lo- ruling large parts of it, not for selfish reasons, God forbid, but to bring the light of civilization to backward countries and backward peoples. Hmm. And Freemasonry, that in other words, it was conquering the world in the name of universal values, and Freemasonry wedded itself to that lie wholesale absolutely wholesale um it was proud generation after generation of freemasons were proud imperialists and proudly bought that lie and many many of the crimes of the british empire one or two of which i um illustrate in the book were committed by Freemasons who thoroughly believed in that bringing the light of civilization lie that that idea that masonry's universal values were a kind of uh, an indication of Britain's entitlement to rule large parts of the world. Freemasonry had gi- Britain had given the world Freemasonry uh, mm-hmm. and you know that was a sign of its, Mission, uh, if you like. And British Freemasons simply have not come to terms with that legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Freemasons, one of the very interesting things uh, about studying Freemasonry as a historian is that this is an organisation that has historians in it, that it's very proud of its traditions, that has specialist lodges of historians. You know, Masons it's almost part and parcel of being a Freemason, that of studying the history of Freemasonry. But those histories of Freemasonry have been apologetic overwhelmingly, those histories written by Freemasons, when it comes to the British Empire, they have not come to terms with the racist enterprise that the British Empire was.
0: Well, let me close on the Freemasonry conspiracy topic by simply asking you, do, do you have any reason to believe that things like the Kennedy assassination, the uh, 9-11 attacks in America, uh, and other such events, which are often, in those dark recesses of the internet, linked with Freemasonry. Um, You found a real conspiracy linked to Freemasonry in modern Italy, but do you have a sense that those other events have, have any legitimate link to Freemasonry as an organization? None whatsoever.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd love I I'd, I'd glad you brought up Dan Brown before. Yes. Because uh, the the Lost Symbol which was his sequel of course to the um Da Vinci Code. And the Da Vinci Code caused all sorts of problems for the Catholic Church when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um you know they thought they were going to basically had a lot of nutcases banging on their doors saying, you know, tell us the secret. And the Freemasons, when they heard that the next book was going to be about the lost symbol, was going to be about Freemasonry, were terrified that they were going to, you know, there was going to be, it was going to unleash a new wave of conspiracy uh, theories. But the smart thing that Dan Brown did, and I, I, you know, I'm probably the only academic who will speak up for Dan Brown, but I really like that book. <laughs> the smart thing that he did was it's basically we hope this isn't a spoiler it's basically the bad guy who is the only one who believes that the masons are really powerful and have mm-hmm. you know and he's bonkers he's nuts yeah. and uh the, so in other words it's a, it, he it's a book that uh the the a kind of shaggy dog story where we're led to believe there's a great Masonic secret at the end, but actually what it is, it's the ravings of a homicidal madman, uh, who is the bad guy and the Masons are just decent chaps. You know, right. so I think you know, I'm with Dan Brown on this, in that there is uh, you know, there's there's no truth in that these Masonic conspiracies. Like I said, you know, Freemasonry has alone has been powerful often in spite of itself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in giving birth to conspiracy thinking. Its organizational model, this idea of a brotherhood bound together by a sense of secrecy, bound together by rituals where you join a local cell of the organisation, but that gives you access to a much wider network. That organisational model has been extraordinarily successful. Loads of other organisations have plagiarised it, copied it, not the Masons' fault, but the Sicilian Mafia is a plagiarised, copy of the freemasons many Mm. sicilian mafiosi you know if they turn state's evidence and you ask them well what's the mafia then they say well we're kind of like a freemasons for murderers and killers and and and, uh, criminals and they're absolutely right (laughs) they're absolutely right obviously the ethical purposes are very very different uh light years apart but in terms of both the historical origins of the Sicilian Mafia and in terms of its organisational template, they're absolutely right. Um, so the Masonic history is in part about the unconscious influence, the inadvertent influence uh, of the Masonic model and of
0: the fear of Freemasonry mm-hmm. on, on world history. John, we close our episodes here on Chatter by pulling out a random pre-printed question from this, our Chatterbox, as we call it. So I'm going to surprise you with this. Who is someone in your field or a related one whose work more people should be following? Um... Well, there's a very
1: good book, I think. You know, as a historian, my, my main interest in it is the history. And if you want to know the history, a fuller history of American Freemasonry, there's a book um, called American Freemasons. Uh, subtitle is something like Three Centuries of Building Communities by someone called Mark Tabbert. And i, I, I that's a book I greatly admire because it's one of the first histories of freemasonry in america that is very inclusive that includes systematically includes both african-american and mainstream traditions both prince hall freemasonry and mainstream white freemasonry to give an overall picture too many of them take a sort of a priori decision Mm -hmm. um and that's that's a really nice book that i
0: i draw on quite heavily that american readers i think would like and I believe it was uh, Mark Tabbert who also wrote the book that was entirely about George Washington's experience with as a Freemason um, and his involvement in in the Lodge. So probably a great place. We'll put those in the show notes so other people can benefit from that research and writing as well. John, this has been extremely enjoyable for me and I hope intriguing for everyone. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it enormously. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at ThatWasChatter.